0: It's Tuesday, November 3rd. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Election Day is here, and we're all eager for the polls to close and get quick results for the big question. Who wins the presidency? But this year, there's a record number of people voting early by mail, and counting all those ballots could take some time. One of the most crucial numbers to follow as the night goes on might be the votes not yet counted. Mark McQuette, politics reporter at Bloomberg News, joins us for a new statistic that the Associated Press is using to see how far off we are from a result. Next, President Trump has called on his supporters to watch out for fraud and volunteer to become poll watchers. So far in early voting, that army of watchers didn't really materialize, in part because poll watching seems to be an extremely boring job. Still, as some are concerned about voter intimidation, it is something to watch out for as the day develops. Jessica Hoosman, lead reporter for ProPublica's Electionland Project, joins us for more. Finally, as the pandemic began and lockdowns were in place, there were tons of stories of pets being adopted and a boon for the pet care industry. Now, as the pandemic wears on and we see job losses and reduced wages, we're seeing a growing number of people having to surrender their pets to shelters or sanctuary. Brent Skrotenbor, reporter at USA Today, tells us how it's getting tougher for some to care for their pets. It's news without the noise dive in
1: so many people voted by mail and it does take time to count those ballots and in this city those ballots can come in after election day so long as they're postmarked by election day so it's natural that the count may take some time
0: joining us now is mark niquette government and politics reporter at bloomberg news thanks for joining us mark glad to be with you we're all getting ready for election day and then what comes after that the results This year, it's going to be a little different. There's a a huge, huge surge of mail-in voting. That's going to complicate things. People are saying, you know, we might not know at the end of election day who is the winner. That could be wrong. But one of the interesting things that's going to be happening is how we're counting these numbers and what we're looking at to project a winner. You know, a lot of places, you know, CNN, Fox News, whenever you're looking at results, you're looking at precincts reporting a specific number that they're looking at. But The AP and other places are going to start using another number to try to kind of predict what's going to happen there. And basically, uh, it's going to be these number of votes that have not been counted yet. So, Mark, walk us through some of this.
2: Yeah, that's right. Normally, we're all used to watching election returns come in and you pay attention to the the vote totals the margins between the candidates, but also the percentage of precincts reporting because that tells you how much of the vote is yet to be counted. Well, this year, that number is is almost meaningless in a lot of these states because of the overwhelming amount of mail-in votes that are being cast, a lot of which won't be counted until after the election. So what you really need to know is what the total estimated votes that'll be cast and the number of ballots that are outstanding so you can evaluate whether the margin between the candidates is large enough to declare a winner or if you need to count these outstanding ballots to figure out who won. So what AP is going to be doing is reporting a percentage, which would be the total vote cast against the total expected vote. AP has done research and based on past elections and what it expects in these states of the total vote that's going to be cast. So you'll see a percentage of the total vote cast and it you, let you know what's yet to be counted. The same thing in a lot of battleground states like Pennsylvania and Ohio where you'll actually be able to go to the state website that reports the results and see a number reported of total absentee and provisional votes outstanding. So on these state websites, you'll be able to see exactly how many outstanding ballots there are. And again, you can measure that against the margin between the candidates. Say, Hey, is the number of outstanding votes higher than the margin between the candidates? You're not going to be able to call the race. Right.
0: And this is going to be a particularly important thing because there's such a big contrast in the way each state counts their ballots. And Pennsylvania and Wisconsin do it one way. They can't even open the mail-in ballots until election day. I mean, every state does it a different way, and that's why this number might be more important this time.
2: This number is going to be most important in states like Pennsylvania and Wisconsin and Michigan because, as you said, those states can't start counting what's going to be a flood of mail-in ballots until Election Day itself or the day before in the case of Michigan. So in Pennsylvania, for example, there's already about 3 million mail-in ballots that have been requested, and you can only process so many on election day itself. So it's sort of guaranteed you're going to have hundreds of thousands of outstanding ballots left to count after election day. So the number is going to be very important in those states, the number of outstanding ballots. And nationally, as you said, you're going to be able to tell what votes have come in, and in some states like North Carolina and Florida that are very good at processing ballots and can start, in some cases, 22 days ahead of the election. So when you see the votes reported, you know, they'll have a, a big chunk of the outstanding ballot already counted. And this is also important in a state like Ohio where while they're able to process their absentee ballots and report them very quickly on election night, Ohio law allows ballots that are received up to 10 days after the election, as long as they're postmarked by the day before the election, they can be counted. So there could be a lot of ballots that could still arrive after the election that could be counted. And again, that would might matter depending on if the race is close
0: wanted to talk uh, just briefly a little bit more about Pennsylvania, just because they're such a key state to this whole thing. From your reporting here, there, I mean, they're expecting to get 3 million mail-in ballots. They can't start till day of, 7 a.m. on election day. And uh, I guess one of the uh, officials there said that they expect the vast majority of ballots will be counted by the Friday after the election. They're giving themselves that much time to try and process all of this stuff.
2: That's because it's a time-consuming process. Essentially, what's involved in handling these ballots is you get a, an envelope that, in the case of Pennsylvania, contains a second envelope that actually holds the ballot. So you actually have to open two envelopes, pull out the ballot. Well, first, you have to verify that the vote is eligible, you know, that the voter is registered and get the ballot in the right precinct. And then you have to open these two envelopes, physically open them, which takes some time. You have to pull out the ballot which is a paper ballot, and flatten it so it can be fed into a high-speed scanner and then scan them. So in Pennsylvania, they're thinking they'll be able to get ballots ready for scanning about 12,000 an hour, and then once they are able to have the, the ballots fed into the scanners, maybe process you know for scanning about 36,000. So it sounds fast, wow. but like you said, when you have 3 million ballots and you can't start even opening the envelopes until 7 a.m. on election night, it's going to take some time.
0: Mark Niket, government and politics reporter at Bloomberg News. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank
3: you. I'm urging
2: my supporters to go into the polls and watch very carefully because that's what has to happen. I am urging my people. I hope it's going to be a fair election. If it's a fair election, I am 100% on board. But if I see tens of thousands of ballots being manipulated, I can't go along with that. Joining
0: us now is Jessica Husman, lead reporter for ProPublica's Electionland Project. Thanks for joining us, Jessica.
3: Thanks for having me.
0: Election Day is here, and there's lots of things to watch out for. Obviously, we're going to be monitoring what the vote totals are at the end of the evening. But one of the other storylines kind of developing throughout the day, and even as early voting was going on, was this whole notion of poll watchers. As we've heard the president call on a lot of his supporters to go out there and watch the polls, watch out for any inklings of fraud or things going wrong. On the early election side, that really didn't seem to pan out in a lot of areas. There there just didn't seem to be a lot of Republican poll watchers turning up around a, a lot of places. So, Throughout Election Day, that's going to be one of the other things that we're looking out for. So, Jessica, tell us a little bit about this. I love the way some one of the operatives put it in here. They said, you know, one of the big problems with this is just it's there's rampant boredom in being a poll watcher.
3: Oh, goodness. Yes. I think that, you know, people listen to Trump and uh, Donald Trump Jr. talking about how Democrats are going to steal the election and watchers are necessary in order to prevent that fraud. I think that people volunteer for that, thinking that they're going to be catching the bad guys all day long. And really, you almost never find anything. And it's also really difficult to identify voter fraud, even if it's happening right in front of you. I mean, we're in a socially distanced situation. You're not going to be that close poll watchers are also not allowed to directly interact with voters. So it's really, it's quite a boring job. I mean, mostly you're just sitting there all day watching people vote and do the same thing over and over and over again. It's pretty <laughs> mind numbing.
0: Yeah, and that is is in large part due to the rules that govern what poll watchers do. They're really not supposed to interact with anybody. They're just supposed to take notes. And then if they do see a problem, they report that to, you know, like a, a campaign attorney or something like that so that they can follow through on all that. So really they're limited in a lot of the stuff that they can do.
3: Yeah, exactly. And you know, there's not, there's not a state in the union that allows poll watchers to just like be vigilantes at the polling locations. So, poll watchers have been a thing since the 1800s. And and in many ways, they play a really important role in our election, which is that they are there to to make sure that nothing is out of order and that every rule is being followed. And so sometimes they do play really important roles. Like when you see campaigns sue over something that happened at a polling location, that is usually reported by a poll watcher, but those things are very few and far between. Um, and so, you know, they they have to follow very strict guidelines. Generally, if they see something that is upsetting to them or they feel violates the rules, they're supposed to quietly raise that to a poll worker or if it's egregious enough, call their campaign headquarters and get an opinion from an attorney. But they are not there to do anything specifically and certainly cannot legally intimidate voters from their their franchise.
0: Yeah, and I guess that's one of the concerns is if there were to be any type of voter intimidation, you know, with their presence or, you know, with them causing a ruckus. I know in a lot of of the uh, guidelines that even the party set out, they say, hey, we don't want any spectacles, so make sure you follow all the rules. So what's happened this year so far? This army of poll watchers never really materialized. Uh, The parties individually, obviously, are going to have people set up all over the place. But what's happened so far, at least in early voting that we've seen?
3: Not a whole lot. I mean, that that's kind of the mantra from every single elected or elections official that I've spoken to, which is that, yeah, they might have a, a few poll watchers, but not that many. And, and the ones that they do have are following the rules. And in many of the locations that I spoke to, especially highly contested swing states, the Democrats actually outnumber the Republicans quite handily. So, for example, in Fulton County, Georgia, which is where Atlanta is, The folks there tell me that Democratic poll watchers outnumber Republicans five to one. And the most stark example of this that I've seen is in Kentucky, where the Senate campaign for Amy McGrath has just funded an incredible number of what are called challengers in Kentucky. So Kentucky has very limited poll watcher rules and they can only change challenge the eligibility of a voter to cast a ballot. Obviously, there are very few of those challenges made. But in Fayette County, which is where Lexington is, home of the University of Kentucky, um, there are only seven Trump poll watchers registered and there are 117 Amy McGrath poll watchers registered. Wow. So <laughs> clearly, we're dealing with a little bit of an imbalance here. And and I think that a lot of a lot of that is probably overreaction on the part of the Democratic Party, assuming that the Trump campaign was really going to gather up this this army of watchers but that's just not really materialized. And so what we have is just basically a whole lot of nothing which is yeah. which is probably a good thing for most voters. Hey
0: a common orderly voting process is the probably the best thing we could hope for. Oh well, absolutely. Jessica Hoosman, lead reporter for ProPublica's election land project. Thank you very much for joining us.
3: Thank you. I appreciate it.
1: People are thinking about or have thought about or have even surrendered their pet already. And because they're just looking at it as just cost reduction or just a reality, the reality of if you can't keep your pet. And so they've had to surrender them. And we've seen an uptick in that. Joining
0: us now is Brent Skrotenbor, reporter at USA Today. Thanks for joining us, Brent. Thank you. Wanted to check in on our furry friends throughout this pandemic. Early on in the pandemic, we were getting a lot of good news. There was a lot of adoptions that were going on. People on lockdown were looking for pets to keep them company, and also we were getting some good news there. And the dog economy was booming because of that. But as this thing has worn on now, and the financial effects of the pandemic start to affect more people, we're getting another side of it now, and people are having to surrender their pets either send them to shelters or to other sanctuaries, things like that. So Brent, tell us a little bit about what's going on with our pets right now.
1: Because of the economy and the shutdowns and and people uh, having reduced wages or lost jobs, there are people that have struggled financially to pay bills, including pet bills. And that can be everything from dog food and veterinarian care to being able to have a roof over your head. We're going into a period now where... A lot of people are uncertain about paying the rent. There's been a moratorium on evictions that is going to run out soon. Uh, Congress has stalled on adding additional relief for people who are struggling during this pandemic. And one of the consequences of that, one of the many consequences of that, is people are thinking about or have thought about or have even surrendered their pet already. And because they're just looking at it as just cost reduction or just a reality, the reality of if you can't pay your rent and have to move in with a friend or a family, you can't keep your pet. And so they've had to surrender them. And we've seen an uptick in that various places. The Humane Society of the United States has estimated as well that based on the risk of eviction in the coming months with so many people, that there could be as many as 10 or 11 million pets at risk of being surrendered just because of everything that's happening.
0: And then talking about the the pets that are most at risk for all of this are, you know, the older pets, the ones that need a lot more extra care and attention. So unfortunately, those are at higher risk and then harder to find places for as well.
1: Exactly. Uh, Senior dogs, in particular senior pets, uh, they require more care, as you mentioned, and they're also harder to find spots for, like not many people... Who are looking to adopt a dog or any kind of pet want to adopt a senior dog, they usually want to adopt a younger dog or a puppy because it has obviously a longer life and, and senior dogs, you know, they might have a few years left, unfortunately. And so that makes senior dogs and pets more at risk in a situation like this, uh, just because of the cost and, and the likelihood of finding uh, somebody else to take care of that dog and take on that expense. Fortunately, there are organizations that specialize and focus on senior dogs in a situation. Senior dog sanctuaries. If you know anybody that has a senior dog and can't afford it anymore, that that is the best route to take for a senior pet as a senior pet sanctuary, where they focus on. They're usually non, almost all nonprofits, and they focus on this is their mission to keep these uh, beloved pets away from shelters where they might be euthanized just because of their age and the, the expense of their care. There are sanctuaries that uh, are an alternative for that situation and help them find uh, a new, new owner and, in the meantime, better personalized care.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's important to know the options, that you just don't always have to go to a shelter right away, that there are some of these sanctuaries that can help out. And uh, one that you profile in, in – uh, your article is Lily's Legacy, which is uh, takes care of older dogs as well, so that's really good news. I, I did want to talk about, this is kind of the unfortunate side of it, but the dog economy is still kind of booming, uh, you know, from everything from people buying uh, accessories and stuff for their pets. Uh, even uh, trips to the veterinarian are also on the uptick. So uh, tell me a little bit about the, the economy and how that's doing still. For
1: those that are better off in the economy, uh, they've... They've noticed uh, at least early on in the pandemic that they're at home more, they're working from home. And one of the costs of that or one of the downsides of working from home for people who are new to that is it can be very lonely at home during the day. And for those who didn't have pets, they looked at adopting and they did adopt. And also because they were home more, they could take care of the pet all day long instead of like having to leave eight hours a day, they were available to take care of their pet all day long. And so they were that availability and being at home, being lonely, it created this environment situation where there a lot of dogs and pets found homes uh, during the pandemic. Foster pets, people like a lot of the shelters were closed or had restricted hours too, and they needed to find homes for those animals. So that led to a lot of foster situations where those animals found homes during the pandemic because of that. Another consequence of that is if people spending more money, people who are adopting and fostering dogs and cats and other pets, uh, they're spending more money They're like everything from leashes to dog diapers, the sales went up during the pandemic and the veterinary costs, as you mentioned, went up. So that is, a, that is a bright spot of the pandemic. There were more homes found for pets. A lot of people adopted, a lot of people fostered pets. But not everybody is in this same situation economically. So, you know, it's it's both. There's a situation where things are very good for dogs and pets and also where we're having this risk now where if people are evicted and can't afford to pay their bills, we're seeing some surrender. So it's been a little bit of good and bad going on for dogs and pets, and especially senior pets.
0: Brent Skrotenbor, reporter at USA Today. Thank you very much for joining us.
1: Thank you for your time. Thanks a lot.